0: Okay, Luke 11, where have we've been, this big idea, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die, and so the things he's teaching the disciples are really for when he's gone. I want you to know what it looks like to be a follower of mine. Last week, love God, love people. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? We love God and we love people. We spent most of our time on loving people. That was the Good Samaritan parable. To love people means to take a risk to give them what you have that they need. So loving people biblically, taking a risk to give people what you have that they need. And we close looking at Mary and Martha and saying loving God fundamentally, primarily, is relational. It's not about what we do for him. It's about a commitment to be with him, to cultivate relationship with him. That idea of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet being better than Martha scurrying around Making everything ready. Although service is wonderful, responsibility is wonderful, obedience is wonderful, but what's primary, all of those things come out of what's primary, which is relationship. And we're going to finish, or we're going to continue to look at that idea of cultivating relationship with God this morning by looking at prayer, prayer being the, the, the primary discipline or the primary practice that helps us cultivate that relationship with God. And when we hear prayer for some of you, it's, it just produces guilt because you feel like I don't pray very well or I don't pray enough. I read somewhere that the average Christian prays less than a minute a day. I read somewhere else less than four minutes a day. It, I don't know. It doesn't really matter to me. ultimately. We can say we could all do better if that's what we're if that's the side of the road that you're on, so okay. Your prayer life isn't great. It can get better. Even if your prayer life is great, it can get better. So let's not spend a lot of time on that. And I'm not going to give you a lot of how-tos, how many minutes, and here's a book. I'm not, going to, I'm not necessarily, I'm not not necessarily, I'm not at all going to do that for you. I don't want prayer to become something that you're working off of a list. You know how to communicate with people. You do that every day. And prayer is a primary way you communicate with God. It's hardwired in you. To be able to communicate with others and to be able to communicate with Him. And I want, my hope is that you'll be inspired this morning to do that, not feel like you're walking out of here with a list of do's and don'ts. On the other side, for some of us, when we hear prayer, it doesn't produce guilt in us, it's just like, eh, apathy, it doesn't work. I don't, I don't see why I feel like I'm talking to the ceiling or to the air. I don't see any fruit. There's no benefit there. And again, my hope for you is that you would be... Uh, I hope that you'll be able to see the opportunity, not guilt, uh, but the opportunity that God gives us to influence Him through prayer. So we'll start reading chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to look at three short passages. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Uh, If you grew up in a church, you probably heard that as a Lord's Prayer. Your version that you probably memorized is from Matthew. It's a little bit longer, but they have the same basic um, elements there. What I want you to hear is what, what's the point of that. The disciples, the 12 disciples, come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. They knew how to pray. They were Jewish men. They knew how to pray. What they were saying is we want to know how to pray like you. Every rabbi or teacher had a group of followers. And often these rabbis or teachers would have a specific way that they prayed, something that was distinctive about the way that they prayed, the things that they prayed, and their followers would imitate them. And so that kind of set them apart. So you'd have Kurt's group, and they would pray a certain way, and Chris's group would pray a certain way, and that would just let us know, well, this guy's with Kurt, and this guy's with Chris. And so the 12 disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, you're you're our guy, you're our teacher, you're our master, and we want to know how to pray like you. We want a distinctive followers of Jesus' prayer. That's what they're asking for. And so for us, if the question is, what does it look like to follow Jesus, it looks like loving God, which is cultivating relationship with God, prayer being the primary tool, the primary practice that helps us cultivate that relationship with God, then this prayer becomes very important. I don't care. I don't think it matters if you pray these exact words. I don't. You can. I don't necessarily know that there's a whole lot to be gained from that. But I think what we see here is Jesus saying, here's, a, here's how I pray, and let me invite you in. There's a bit of a template here, but it doesn't get all the way down to a checklist. If you can kind of keep that tension in mind. There's a bit of a template, there's a bit of a pattern, but it doesn't get all the way to the point of a checklist. Do all of these things every time you pray. The first word is the most important word. And the whole thing that we're going to talk about today, Father, that's the most important word when it comes to prayer. That's who we are praying to. And it becomes, for us, it sets the context For everything that happens in the world or the practice of prayer. Everything is done under this umbrella of I'm approaching my father. I'm not approaching my boss. I'm not approaching my teacher. I'm not approaching the supreme being of the universe. I'm not approaching my boyfriend. I'm approaching my father. And if you notice in all of that prayer that we just read, there's the word father and then there's five requests and that's it. The heart of prayer... It's not informing God about things he doesn't already know. It's inviting God to get involved in your life, in your world. That's why every month, if it's your birthday, we ask you to stand up and say, this is what I want God to do in my life. For whatever reason, many of us, we've imbibed this notion that asking for things is selfish. It's self-centered. It's not worthy of a true follower of Jesus. If I was really following God, then I wouldn't ask for things for myself. I'd just spend all my time focused on Other people absolutely focus on other people, but ask for things for yourself too. look at this prayer. There's two petitions saying, God, I want you to do this in the world. And there's three saying, and this is what I want you to do in my life. Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Put that into prayer. Praise. Absolutely. Put that into prayer. But don't lose that. The heart is asking God to get involved and You're asking him as a child to a father. Childlike, not childish. We don't manipulate. We don't leverage. We don't whine. We don't throw tantrums. What we do is recognize our need and dependence. So when we're inviting Him to get involved, what we're saying is, We need you. That's humility. We've talked about that before. Every time I'm asking God to get involved in my life and in my world, what I'm acknowledging, what I'm saying is, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I'm dependent upon you. And that's the posture. ...of a follower of Jesus. Primarily, I'm a son or I'm a daughter... ...and I'm approaching God as my father in prayer. And then what do we pray? So the person we pray to is our father. It doesn't... Like if you say Lord or you say God... ...those things don't get thrown into the trash pile. God doesn't not hear a prayer because you have the wrong... ...whatever that would be appellation at the front. But your heart... I want you to say as I'm approaching him as my father. I think that's important for us as we get into the rest of this stuff with prayer. So what do we pray? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We don't use that word hallowed. What does that mean? Uh, maybe be famous, um, expand your reputation, glorify your name. We want more people to know who you are. That's what that hallowed be your name. We want your name lifted up and we want everybody to know who you really are. And we're asking you to do that, God. We're saying, my prayer is, God, that you would hallow your name. My prayer is that, God, you would make your name known. My prayer is that, God, you would make yourself famous. And that you would extend your rule and reign. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's his rule or reign. I pray, God, that you would extend your rule and reign in our world. That more of our world, more of my world, would come under your influence and control. So the first two petitions here in this Model prayer for followers of Jesus is, God, keep doing what you're doing. Keep getting your name out there. Keep making a name for yourself. Keep expanding, extending your reputation and your rule, both your character and your activity. We want those things growing in our community. Recognizing neither one of those prayers is fully answered until Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, then every knee will bow and every tongue confess, but not until then. When Jesus returns, then sin and Satan and death will be ultimately defeated and his kingdom will reign and rule on the earth, but not until then. There's incremental progress to be made. God's name can be known at a greater degree next week and next month and next year than it is today. His kingdom can expand, can extend into other areas of our community next week and next month and next year. But we realize those things won't fully be accomplished until Jesus returns. And we also recognize that the primary way those prayers are answered is through us. The primary way God's fame is extended or his kingdom is expanded is through his people. And so as you're praying that, realize in a sense you're putting yourself on the hook. You're saying, God, do this. God, do this through me. My encouragement to you as we walk through this is to figure out how to make these Petition specific. That's why, to me, it doesn't do a ton of good just to go through the, the words that are written here on the page. It's easy to do that just with your mind and not necessarily engage your heart or the world around you. So what I'm doing when I pray and I'm thinking, God, hallowed be your name. What I'm doing is thinking the specific people who need to know who Jesus is. They need to know who God is. They have a wrong conception or they have no conception. And so I'm thinking specifically, God. I'm praying in blanks life. Be famous. Make yourself known. Make a name for yourself in their life. Show yourself to them. Reveal yourself to them. When I'm thinking about God's kingdom coming, that's not generic for me. I'm thinking about the places where I live and work. And saying, God, I, I, need, I want your rule and your reign. There's not justice here and there needs to be. There's hatred here and there doesn't need to be. There's not, there needs to be more kindness here, more compassion here, whatever those things are. Less wickedness here. And I'm praying specifically about those areas where my feet touch, the places where I walk. I'm praying, God, let your kingdom come here. Let it come here. Let your will be done here. I pray this place would come more and more under your influence and under your control. So make those things personal and specific In your life, so we go from these global petitions, "Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come," to very specific and personal ones. Give us today our daily bread. That's just simply saying, "Give me what I need to survive today." Now, for most of us, we don't actually need bread. We've got a pantry full, and if not, we've got a Kroger full, and then we've got a Publix full, and then we've got a Costco full. We can. It's it's a long time for most of us. Before we're saying, God, if you don't put something on the table, I'm going to starve. That's not where most of us live. And so this give us this day our daily bread. It's easy just to skip past that and not recognize our need and our dependence upon him. Again, make it specific. Maybe for you, it's not literal food. Unless, again, you go back a lot of way. Well, God, thank you that you've given me the ability to earn a living and all of that's fine. I'm looking for something a little more immediate. And so I think about, and I've told you all this before, what I think about is I have a wife and four kids. And I can love them till about 9.30 in the morning on my own. And then I'm done. So my choices are go to bed or pray and say, and it's not, it's me. It's not them. They're easy. It's me. And so I have to say my daily bread is, God, you've got to give me grace to love her and love them the way they need to be loved. Because I can't do it. On my own. That's beyond me. That's daily bread for me. I've got a box of cereal. I don't necessarily need to pray for that. I absolutely need to pray. That I can love my family better. Here, there's a thousand things that I could do every day. God, you've got to show me what's the most important thing today. Otherwise, I'm going to waste it. I'm going to spin my wheels. I'm going to go after what's screaming at me. What's urgent. Not what's important. So you've got to... I need that. Daily bread for me is direction. I want to be led today. I want to know where the ship is going and what, what does faithfulness look like for me. So when it comes to my job, I need, there's daily bread for me. I can expand, expand that out a circle or two and think about people who I love. And I know the areas where maybe they need daily bread. And I can pray for those things. Again, very rarely am I praying for literal food. But there are plenty of time. But there are other things that are very necessary for life that I do pray for. My encouragement to you is, again, don't skip over that too lightly. Really look at your own life and say, what do I need today from the Lord? And express your dependence upon him. God, I need you in this area of my life. So give me what I need in that area. Then we get to forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin. Against us. So this is relational maintenance. It's ongoing. I'm already God's son. You're already his daughter. He's adopted you into his family. So this is not about whether you get kicked out of the house or not. This is just a recognition that we all screw up. We all mess up. We all sin. And over time, if we don't deal with those mess ups and sins, they begin to undermine our relationship with God. Every one of you grew up in a house, and you did that. You disobeyed your parents, you broke the rules, you did, you disappointed them in some way, and you had to clean it up. They weren't kicking you out of the house, they weren't ostracizing you from the family, they weren't telling you to change your name, but just part of being in relationship is acknowledging the drops and saying, I dropped it here. I blew it in this place. Forgive me for that. So that's really what's going on here. What's interesting and what we need to note is our Capacity to receive forgiveness from God is directly tied to our willingness to forgive other people. He says it this way in Matthew 6, Jesus does, even more explicitly. If you forgive men and women when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men and women their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. That's as clear as he can make it. Our ability to receive, our capacity to receive forgiveness from the Father is directly tied to our willingness to extend forgiveness to others. Is that some kind of works-based righteousness? Is that some kind of deal that God is making for us that doesn't sound very gracious? But ultimately, we have to make a choice. There's two um, ways of dealing with people. There's there's two economies relationally. You can either live in an economy of justice or an economy of grace, and you have to make a choice. You can't straddle the fence. An economy of justice says, I'm going to treat people based on how they Treat me or I'm going to treat people based on what they deserve. That's what I'm going to do. And so if Brandon, if he's being a great friend to me this week, then I treat him accordingly. If I feel like he's let me down in some ways, then I treat him accordingly. I treat him based on his behavior. That's justice. Grace says I treat him based on how God treats me. And so his behavior towards me becomes much less significant in terms of how I respond to him. I'm responding to him based on how God responds to me. That's an economy of grace. And you have to decide which one do you want to live in. I can't say, God, I want you to be gracious to me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mete out justice to everybody else. What God says is, well, you treat others the way you want to be treated. So if I see you in an economy of justice with other people, my assumption is, well, that's how you want to be treated as well. So we can do that. You don't want that from him. You don't want him to treat you based on your behavior. You don't want him to give you what your sin deserves. You want grace. And so if I'm going to say, God, I want to receive grace from you, I want to live in this economy of grace with you, then I've got to be willing to extend that grace to other people. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no justice in an economy of grace. It just means I'm not the one that decides what justice looks like or when it's dispensed. What I'm doing in an economy of grace is if you sin against me, if, let's just say that's a picture for that is debt, you're indebted to me, I cancel it. And say, I'm not going to hold that against you. God, I'm leaving it up to you to ex- to execute justice in their life. Whatever you decide that looks like, then it's your deal. It's not mine. I'm choosing to live in an economy of grace that says, I'm not treating you based on your track record, based on what you deserve. I'm treating you based on how God treated me. Last, lead us not into tempt- to temptation. This one's hard for me. Why would I have to pray that? Is that the kind of thing God does? Does he normally lead us into temptation? This is James. No one, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Why? God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So why are we praying this prayer? A couple of things. One, We want to be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 is one of our anchors. God leads us. We want to keep in step with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. And part of it is recognizing my own weakness. God, as you're leading me, I recognize my propensity for sin. And so keep me away from that. Don't lead me into sin as you're leading me because I know how prone I am. Another, the word for temptation in the New Testament is also the same word for test or for trial. Tests and trials can be good. Temptations not. Tests and trials can be good. Opportunity for God to see what's in us. Think about Abraham. God is the one that led him up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And the Bible says God tested him. He wanted to know what was in his heart. But in those very trying external circumstances, I'm not going to go through that chart. You can look at it. In In those very trying external circumstances, we're tempted. Abraham, you know he was tempted. To figure out, how do I get out of this? How do I avoid sacrificing my only son? You know that temptation was with him for the three days it took to get up the mountain and get Isaac on the altar. He didn't give in to sin, and I think there's a picture for us there. The enemy wants to take advantage of those circumstances, those external circumstances that God can use to refine us and strengthen us, to call us up, help us see, hey, I'm doing all right. There really is something going on. In my heart, the enemy wants to use to undermine and blow up and destroy. That's the temptation part of it. So praying, lead me not into temptation, is a recognition that that's out there. I'm going to be led by your spirit, and I'm asking as you're leading me, I recognize my own weakness, and I'm depending on you to keep me holy. Because I know in my own strength, I'm not going to make it. So that's who we pray to, or to whom we pray. I guess that's more correct. What we pray. Then how do we pray? Jesus said, suppose you have a friend. You go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Suppose the one inside says, don't bother me. The door's locked. My children and I are in bed and I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, your Bible may say persistence. Your Bible may say boldness. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say, ask and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks find, and the, finds, and the one to whom, the, the one who knocks, the door will be open. So, parable, how do we pray? The key word is that shameless audacity, or persistence, or boldness. I'm not going to talk about shameless audacity, that's not a phrase that we use. We get boldness, and we get persistence. That's what, those, that's what that word means. That's what this guy inside the house is responding to. So bread is baked every day, consumed every night. You don't have any. You don't keep it around. Someone comes to your house at midnight. It's your responsibility to make a place for them. It's your responsibility to show them hospitality. You don't have bread. It takes a long time to bake it. So you start banging on doors. Everybody lives in really close quarters. You're banging on doors. Who's got bread? Because it's my responsibility to take care of this guest. You knock on a house and the guy says, be quiet. I'm in a one room house. Me and all my kids are sleeping on the floor here for me to get up. I'm going to have to wake up everybody. But even though I'm not going to answer because we're friends, because of this bold persistence, I'm going to give you what you want. And the idea there is that it's a how much more. So if this guy responds to his friend because of his and he's just a regular guy, how much more will God respond to us? So ask, seek, and knock. How much more can you expect your good father, remember that's our umbrella, father. How much more can you expect your father in heaven to respond to you? If you know as on a friend level, on a human level, people respond to the knock, 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 knock on the door. How much more will your father in heaven respond? Respond to you. The tense of those verbs is is continual action. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. I don't think it's very fruitful to decide what's the difference between those three. There may be differences. But ultimately, the thing is, keep bringing whatever your requests are. Bring them boldly and persistently before the Lord. That's what he honors. Like, that's great news for me. That It doesn't say God will honor you if you're eloquent. God will honor you if you pray the right words, if you pray at the right time, if you ask in the right way, if you stand in the correct position. None of that matters. What he's saying is, God will respond if you just keep coming. Just keep coming. Keep asking boldly, and, you'll, and he will respond to you. To me, that's incredibly encouraging. And I hope that's encouraging to you when you think about your own prayer life. There's something to be said for just sticking with it until you see some type of an answer last which of you fathers if your son asks for a fish we'll give him a snake instead or if he ask for an egg we'll give him a scorpion if you then know you're evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give the holy spirit to those who ask so here we have all right so you're entering into this life of prayer so who do we pray to the father what do we pray we're asking god to get involved in our life and in our world how do we pray boldly And persistently. So what happens when things don't work out the way we want them to? Then it's great comfort to know you've got a good father. Remember, that's our umbrella. So when what you hear is just hold on, just wait, you're going to hear that at some point. It's comforting to know you've got a father in heaven and he doesn't give bad things. When he says no, when the thing that you wanted, he does not give to you. Or He gives you something in a way that it's a different answer than what you were thinking you would get. It's comforting to say, you know what, I've got a Father in heaven and He gives good gifts. He actually gives the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit. And if He gives me the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift, how much more can I expect Him to give me all of these other things? It's that whole idea of seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. If, I'm rece- if He gives the greatest gift, His Spirit, to me, how much more can I trust him to give these other things that are trivial by comparison? So there's comfort there for us, reassurance as we're praying. A couple of things I was thinking about. One is why do we have to be persistent? Like why doesn't God just answer the first time? Why do I have to keep on asking? I don't know. I don't have any. I don't know. Uh, we rarely. God rarely pulls the curtain back and lets us see. I think some of it is because he's trying to mature us as sons and daughters, and there's something about having to come back to him repeatedly. It reinforces our dependence. I think it also can give a chance for him to purify our desires. Maybe when you were young, some of you've been praying for, or maybe you did, you prayed for a spouse for a long time, and you were 12. Like, think of the girl that you were praying for that when you were 12, and who you wound up marrying. Most likely not the same person. God kind of probably refine that a little bit, and you're probably like, thank you for not doing that to me. You know, he honored the heart of your prayer. Even though in your mind you're thinking, it's her, she's the one, and no. So some of that, I think there's persistence there, so God can kind of get at work in our heart. Interesting story in Daniel 10, I think Daniel is a very confusing book. We get a little moment of clarity in chapter 10, Daniel's praying. Daniel's praying and he's fasting, and then three weeks after he starts, an angel comes, and it's like, whew, I just, I just made it. I left from the moment you started praying. I got hung up with this demon, and we were fighting, and then I needed another angel to come and help me so I could get here to you. Again, kind of odd. But you have this three-week gap between when Daniel started praying and when he, his prayers answered, and I've wondered, what would happen if he had given up? Like, would he have ever gotten the answer how did his prayer and fasting contribute to him getting this answer? So the delay had nothing to do with Daniel. It's this spiritual world that we rarely have access to. And so for us, I think there's something to be said for persistence, recognizing we have an enemy. And he tries to do everything he can to subvert what God wants to do. He's a, he steals, he kills, he destroys, he undermines. And our prayer is one of the things that God uses to win. I don't know how that sits for you. It's one of the tools that God uses to advance his purposes in the earth, is our prayer. And if we give up, I don't want you to hear this as guilt, but as an opportunity. If we give up, we, we may be leaving some things on the table that God wants to do. Again, think if Daniel had given up after week one or week two. We, there's a big chunk that we would miss in terms of, you can go back and read Daniel 10 and see what we get. Um, because Daniel persisted in prayer. Let me close with this. This is Revelation. Again, very symbolic, confusing in a lot of ways. But there's a couple of glimpses on prayer in Revelation. This is Revelation 5.8. So, scene, throne room in heaven, a scroll with seven seals that no one can open, that everyone knows is really significant. It's got the end of history is written on these scrolls. And John is going, who can open it? We've got to see what's in there. Nobody can. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and he takes the scroll. He's worthy to open it. And we see, and when Jesus had taken it, that's the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's Jesus. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. What that tells me is prayer. our prayers are precious. They're being collected in heaven. I don't know what it looks like for a bowl to be full. Like, I, I don't know how many equals full. But there's this picture here that everything that's prayed is being, it's being collected. It's not, n- nothing is getting deleted. Nothing is getting misplaced. Nothing is finding its way into the waste basket. So I want you to take courage. If you feel like, man, my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, you think about Revelation 5.8. They're not. They're making it to heaven, if you want to see it that way. And they're being preserved in these bowls. Flip over to chapter 8, if you will. It'll be up on the screen. Similar, when Jesus opened the seventh seal, so he's worked through the other six. When he opens the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And when I saw that seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the Lord. So on the front of the throne. So you picture that. So there's an altar And on this altar there's incense and there's prayers all in front of the Lord. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the people, so there's kind of this picture, those things are kind of wasping up to God, went up before the Lord from the angel's hand. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before the Lord from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Your prayers are powerful. They're all being collected. Or excuse me, your prayers are precious. They're all being collected. And they're all so powerful. You see, like, what gets hurled back to earth are the prayers that people pray. That's what the censor is this thing. If you've been in a Catholic or an Orthodox church, you've probably seen one. They use those in worship. We don't. So you might not know what that is, but the the picture there is that thing is getting filled up with incense and prayers. And at some time, the angel throws all of that stuff back to earth. And then all this stuff starts happening. You can read the rest of Revelation to see. But what comes back to earth are the prayers that first ascended to heaven. Like there's power in what you pray. This is cosmic stuff. In Revelation, we're talking end, like literal end of the world. Things are going on in Revelation. And one of the key dynamics is the prayers of people like you and me. That's not guilt. I hope you hear that as opportunity. God is sovereign and he's holy and he's majestic and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. And what he says to us is, why don't you influence me? And I don't know why we don't. I don't know why I'm thinking of me. Like, why do I leave that on the table? This God of everything is saying, hey, invite me in. Invite me into your life. Tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. I won't always give you everything you want, but ask. And keep on asking. And here's some pictures of how your prayers work. Here's a, I'm pulling the curtain back in Revelation. This is not about little, my little life. Like, again, how much more? If my prayers and your prayers affect eternity, how much more do they affect Tuesday? Like, think about that. The things that you send up, they come back down. I hope that encourages you and inspires you. I don't care if you pray at 6 in the morning or midnight. I don't care if you pray for 10 minutes or 8 minutes or 3 hours. I don't care if you pray in tongues or in English. I don't care if you're eloquent or halting. I, I don't care about any of that. And I don't think God cares about any of that. I think what God is saying is, just keep asking. Be bold. Ask me for what you need. Ask me to make my name holy in the lives of people who you know don't know me. Ask me to extend my reign in places where my influence is not felt. Ask me to meet your needs, tangible and intangible. Ask me to forgive you. Don't wallow in guilt. Don't allow the things that you've done to cause separation to grow between us. Ask me to keep you holy and pure. And keep on asking for those things. Trust me, as a good father, I hear. And I only give good gifts. Let's pray. God, I want us to get it. And I know you want us to get it even more. You don't want us to feel guilty. It's a terrible way to conduct a relationship based on guilt and obligation. That's not what you're asking. You're saying, I'm here. Influence me. Ask me to get involved. If you're not happy with the way I'm involved, keep on asking. God, I pray for all of us that we would develop that boldness. I think of Abraham who goes back and forth with you, bargaining for Sodom and Gomorrah. God, do we have that same boldness, that same confidence in our relationship with you as sons and daughters? Even to the point of of appearing to argue with you. God, you've got to do this. You've got to work. God, I pray we'd be persistent, that we wouldn't give up that we would pray for days or weeks and months and for some for years. To see your name known in your kingdom come. God, I pray for us that prayer would not become rote. It would not become ritual. It would not become just kind of this dutiful obligation that we check off so we can get on with our day. God, I pray we would know what does that look like to pray continuously. I don't know what that means. I pray that we would begin to dive into that. That we would constantly, throughout our day, invite you in. Invite you into our heart, invite you into our meetings, invite you into our dinner table conversations, invite you into our places of business. And God, I pray we'd see results. I do. God, I pray that we would see fruit. We would see you moving. And it would encourage us in prayer. God, I pray for those who've pulled back in prayer because uh, they've been disappointed. Honestly, they didn't get what they wanted. Things didn't work out. And it's caused them to shut down. God, if you could, pull back the curtain and show them. I pray you would. But if that's not the right thing, Lord, I pray that they would commit to saying, You're a good father. You're a good father. And in this situation, I don't get that. God, I'm not going to question your character anymore. I'm going to re-engage in prayer. God, I pray for those who just don't see prayer as effective. And so it's a it's a, it's just, they just don't think about it. God, I pray what they would hear this morning is this incredible invitation. To impact and influence history on a small and a large scale in their own lives and their families and our world. They would realize prayer is this huge. It's a huge lever in some ways. We get to move mountains because we get to move the one who can move them. God, I want to pray particularly for any here today who are in desperate situation and they need you to come through. It's not polite. It's not casual. It's desperate. They need something from you this morning. God, I pray that in their own heart, as they cry out to you in this during this last song, that you would move in their circumstances and that they would see you answering their prayers, that you hear them. that you respond. God, I pray moving forward that we would have children, students, at us as adults that we'd be men and women of prayer. Whatever that means. I don't think that means three hours alone in our closet every morning, but whatever that means for us that we would step into this opportunity. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'll close with worship. We're going to have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. And I would say particularly if some of the stuff that I mentioned kind of stirs in your heart, we would love the opportunity to ask God to get involved. So you guys can stand and bold, we'll dismiss us after this song.